base is locked and ready to fire, sir. Illogical. Alright. It's me, Floyd, from Federation Radio, and we're back once again with episode 23 of season 1 of the original series with Space Seed, which is just an awesome episode. It really is. This episode honestly just feels like a trailer for a movie, the way it builds up. Although, I will say, the episode ends rather quickly. Like, for all the build-up and the interesting plotline they developed, it really did kind of just hit an end very suddenly there but i suppose you know that was the point so well it's not the point but the point was you know it ends with them being exiled on a planet it's over but it's not fully over i think the writers wanted to keep these characters around as an open we could bring them back one day if we want to which spoilers for anybody that somehow doesn't know but star trek wrath of khan the second movie the one that basically saved the franchise when it was in an era of being cancelled and not doing overly well is basically a continuation of this episode where they brought back these people they brought back khan and it pretty much created the foundation of what became like the next generation it gave them the funding it gave them the actual credit around the world to be like hey star trek's not dead star trek is not just cancelled it is still a franchise worth watching and look at this movie and it brought it back so you know khan nudi and singh who is the genetically engineered villain of this is a pretty big deal for the star trek universe because it pretty much wouldn't exist at least not to the extent that it does now you know if he hadn't been written in this episode now obviously this episode was season one so this was before it had been cancelled this is before any of the problems had cropped up arguably it was still a new show it was doing pretty well but you know this was a great episode now, I have to say, I'm from Australia, so hearing the SS Botany Bay was pretty cool. You know, like, I'm from, for anyone that knows Australia, I'm from Victoria, which is the, well, southernmost state. I know we have South Australia as a state, but technically Victoria is that little bit lower geographically. And then I guess if you want to get real technical, Tasmania is an island south of Australia. But of the mainland, we are the southernmost state on the eastern coast. So, for me... I've never actually been to Botany Bay, but I've read all about it. All my life, it's been in the news. I mean, half the things I see on the news are being shown from Botany Bay. Constantly, we see the Sydney Harbour Bridge in the background, and we see, you know, all of that stuff going on constantly, always in the news. Even as a Victorian who's never been to Sydney, I'm very aware of Botany Bay, what it is, its history, and, you know, how it's very relative to modern day. And, um, you know, it's cool. To see Australia get mentioned. In fact, we got mentioned twice in this episode, not just as a reference to Botany Bay being a prison colony initially, which it was. You know, that's that's the joke of Australia, we're nothing but a prison island. Which isn't, you know, not, not to go too far into it, not fully true. South Australia state was a free colony. Some of Australia was not penal colonies, although a large part of it was. But that era didn't last very long, and we very quickly moved on to being more of a regular colony similar to Canada. But anyway... We're not here for Australian history, but like, yeah, I thought it was cool. It's cool that we've got the exiles of the eugenics war, which I should probably mention. The eugenics war in Star Trek are an interesting thing that have sort of been not not rewritten, but kind of backtracked and changed a little bit over the years. At, at this point, I'm not really certain what the official story of it is supposed to have been, but supposedly... 
and this is always funny for me because I was born in 93. So supposedly from about 1993, in they do say it in the episode, some date in 1993, the scientists had made all of these, I don't know if they're lab grown or if they're like slightly genetically engineered, but people who had been interbreeding through some long-term program or whether they're just created. I'm really not sure exactly how these genetically engineered beings came to be. But supposedly in 1993, there were a bunch of these genetically engineered people, and they simultaneously took over 40 nations. Now, even in the 60s, most nations had been decolonized by that point, so even when this episode was written, the UN probably had about a similar number of nations in it as it does today. Maybe a couple less, but like not that many less. So 40 nations is still... You know, like they say, about a quarter of the world's population, which sounds about right, depending what nations you grab. But Khan Noonien Singh, as they point out in the episode, he is the leader of these people that are found on the U.S. Oh, I'm sorry, not the USS, because they weren't united at this point. It was the SS Botany Bay. So he's one of the leaders. And they actually discover that Khan Noonien Singh is a sheik. Uh, sheik, I was going to say. Sheik is something very different. He is a Sikh which is a certain type of religion and cultural group from northern Indian region. They're, they're actually very cool people. I'd very much suggest anyone that's interested in history or cultures to look into the Sikhs at some point. They're fascinating people that are completely into charity and warfare. Don't, don't ask me how those two got mixed together. I don't actually know enough of their history, but yeah, they are experts at both historically warfare and charity, that's what they're very well known for, and still to this day they sign up as soldiers more than most cultures, and they give more to charity, and they're constantly, even here in Australia I see it all the time, when things happen, you'll see all the Sikhs getting together, and they cook up these big pots and all these things, and they bring the food out to help people, like, it is still their culture to this day, so it's cool, but Khan, he is a genetically modified Sikh from, you know, the 90s but it's meant to be because in star trek earth by the 90s was sort of similar to ours but i think it was a bit more aggressive like i think in star trek they sort of point out the 20th century as being i don't think the cold war happened i think that's the big difference in this world is i don't think there was a cold war where the u.s and the ussr sort of tried to influence each other i think in star trek it's meant to be more along the lines of post world war ii we sort of had a peaceful period, but for the most part, lots of nations were still doing things. They were still trying to compete with each other technologically. Lots more nations had nukes. Lots more nations, like, the fact that Khan Noonien and Singh exists, like, don't get me wrong. And that's nothing to do with the race or culture of the people. But, like, India, for the last 40 years, hasn't exactly been in a position to be spending billions and probably trillions that it would take to create someone like Karnuni and Singh. So the idea that in Star Trek they were in a position to do this tells me that that world was much more hostile and people prioritize warfare far more than they do in the modern day. Now, you know, the fact that he is a Sikh is cool. I actually really like that they picked a culture that you wouldn't normally think of as being a villain and that they genetically modified him and turned him into this super soldier. He's almost like an uber Napoleon. He's every dictator you've ever thought of through history, except they're actually smarter. He's stronger. He's better than every man. He doesn't just think he's better than every man like those dictators did. He is. He is genetically lab-grown to be better. But as Spock points out, and I think I wrote the quote for it because I really liked it, 
Um, yeah, superior abilities also breed superior ambition, which is what he says was the mistake that all the scientists made. And you know what? When I was younger, I used to think genetic engineering was the perfect future for humanity, and I still think to a degree it will be. I think we need a certain amount of it. There's a lot of genetic diseases and things that we could screen out and deal with in that manner. But I think I actually agree with Spock. As I'm getting older and I'm watching human nature and I'm reading more about history and living my life, I'm, I don't think I'd be comfortable with the average human suddenly being five times stronger and having 50% more lung capacity. Like, there's enough violence and crimes and things going on in the world right now I don't think I want to augment people until we're mentally ready for such a thing. I think Spock's absolutely 100% right. Even now, in the 2020s, I think if we had technology like this, it's almost certain that we'd almost have our own eugenics war like within a decade. It's just human nature. We are not at a point where we are ready for that kind of power. We're barely ready for nukes. It amazes me to this day that we haven't launched more. Which I should say, in Star Trek, they do, because that's what I was saying was that was the big separation point was the world was more hostile people were trying to compete more you had more nations with nuclear weapons and then you had the eugenics wars where it seems like 40 nations got taken over by these you know eugenic programs people like Noonan and Singh these people that had been bred for war and bred for leadership and were just better at it and they all cooed their leadership and took over and then presumably the aftermath of that event caused World War 3 which is where, as Spock put it, many of our cultures and people groups on our planet had been bombed into almost oblivion, non-existence in some parts of the world. And then we had to recover from that, which is, I think, when the Vulcans land and when they start helping us, because we're at a point where we've just about bombed ourselves back into the Dark Ages, some of us were looking to get better and some of us were still trying to compete. But then the Vulcans came and showed that all of our internal squabblings were stupid, and showed us a better way to be, which I like. I like that in Star Trek, that's the thing. I live in hope that maybe when we meet aliens, they might be more like the Vulcans than, well, what what most Hollywood movies dictate them to be. And also, you know, what a lot of Star Trek species are. I mean, imagine how different Star Trek would be if the Klingons had been the first people to land on Earth and how different humans would be. Or the Cardassians. God, that, that would be horrible. But anyway, like... So yeah, that, that's the big divergence point for Star Trek, is that war. Because that war made us go, like, we were more violent till the 90s, and then through that violence, we basically traumatized ourselves into being peaceful. And then the Vulcans helped us to be more peaceful and to stay that way. But Khan, Nooney, and Singh escaped. Now, what the Vulcans and many people don't tell humans, like Kirk points out, I've never read about this in the history books, and he's like, the SS Botany Bay... No one knew it existed, there's no real records of it. As he said, the World War Three that they had at the time made the record-keeping hard, and I believe that. We're still trying to find things from the last World Wars because buildings were bombed, files were destroyed, people died in the war, and we just lost information. Occasionally you still see videos of people accidentally discovering hidden bunkers with all sorts of stuff in it all around the world. Like, that's 100% believable that something like a starship, if you had the technology like this, could just go missing, and for two centuries, humanity wouldn't even know it existed. Like, that. that is a very believable story. And Khan was one of the big dictators. Like, they say he ruled over a quarter of the world, and then at some point, he went missing. 
Now, it was presumed that he died, probably in nuclear explosions. I'm going to go ahead and guess that that war went nuclear and people just went on assuming that he died. Kind of like, and I don't mean to divert again, but kind of like Hitler. To this day, there's so many theories about what happened to the man because we don't actually know. We never found his body. We found a finger. Some people believe the Soviets got him. Some people believe they tortured him and never told anyone. I used to think that, but at this point I'm like, I don't know. I feel like during the fall of the Soviet Union, something would have popped up. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they did get him and we just never found out. But some people believe he went to Argentina. Most people believe he just killed himself in the bunker and for whatever reason his body went missing. That could also be true. It's not like there weren't more than enough people in Germany that wanted to tear his body apart. So, But, you know, I'm just pointing out the fact that, like, sometimes... Evil people like that do go missing, and their end does become a mystery. And no matter how much time goes by, sometimes they're never solved. And if someone like Hitler, who in the modern day is still quite an important figure from our recent past that everyone knows about, people have differing opinions on him and his ideals, but everyone knows about him everywhere. You could go into the middle of China, and they would still probably tell you that they know who Hitler is. Like, he is a big figure, he shaped a lot of our modern century either through trying to be different to him, trying to never become like him again, you know, and some people, their entire cultures have basically been shaped by resisting him. Look at France and Poland today. Their entire mindset and the way they do things, I would argue, is still largely based on how they were treated by Hitler and his people. Like, Poland is basically a traumatized state today. It has one of the largest militaries in Europe because it never again wants to be put through what it was put through during his reign. You know, and Khan is a similar type of figure, where I feel like a lot of people around all sorts of colonies of Earth, even in Star Trek, like two centuries later, probably know the name Khanunian Singh. He's probably one of those dictators of history that is taught in the history books, that they're taught about never be like this man, this is why we don't do genetic engineering, because people like him are born. So, you know, he's born. He's a scary thing, and I just find this whole concept, this whole episode, brings up so many interesting questions about humanity and certain technologies like eugenics that we have explored in the past. Because in the past, and still in the 60s, it was a fairly popular thing. Now, it kind of went away. I don't really know exactly when or why it became more controversial. I understand the ways it was used in the past were controversial. Obviously, nobody wants to bring back the, like... Nazi eugenics, where they're just outright killing cultural groups, but I I feel like there's a middle ground where it is a technology that could be used to help many people. Like, you know, I'll go ahead and say myself, I've mentioned before, I am autistic. They don't to this day know exactly what causes autism, but maybe through eugenics programs, they might have been able to find a way so that I didn't have to grow up with it. You know, it's not like I would have to go to a lab and be experimented on, just maybe if it wasn't such a controversial science by the mid-90s, it would have been available to have been screened for it. There's a lot of things like that that today I feel like it could do a lot of good. But every time you bring up eugenics, everyone goes, oh, no, no, evil. Which is kind of funny because in Star Trek, they kept that. Like in Star Trek, because of the eugenics wars, eugenics are still very much banned. Like, I don't want to talk too much about it, but in Deep Space Nine, there's a certain character that we'll get into in the far-flung future when I get to Deep Space Nine. He's a bit genetically engineered, and that comes up at one point, and it's a whole thing. He almost has to go see a judicial board, and like even in the 24th century by that point. So we're now, you know, nearly three, four centuries removed from the initial eugenics crimes. And humanity is still at the point of like, oh no, I don't care how good a doctor you are, we're putting you on trial. Because it's still such a feared topic. 
And I kind of feel like that's how it is in the modern world. Although, I will say, in the last few years, I have seen some stuff about it starting to crop up again. I don't know whether it'll lead anywhere or get any serious funding, but it does seem that it's coming back around in conversation. So I'm, I'm hopeful that the good side of it might come through. I'm also a little scared that the Carnoonian Sings of the world may also be augmented. But anyway, so this story, they find the SS Botany Bay, which is a penal ship, basically. I don't... The, the interesting thing about the ship is they never actually determine where it was headed or what it was doing, because Khan refuses to answer any questions about where he was taking his people or why he fled the Earth. Now, I, I have to assume he fled because he was losing the war and he saw his only option for eventually shaping humanity into the ideal he wanted was to get as many genetically engineered people as he could, his followers, onto a ship and probably go to another planet where he was probably hoping to, you know, build something, build a society that could breed more people like them from their genetic stock and then slowly grow and eventually maybe come back to Earth. But I don't know where. I don't know where he was headed. Like they say, the ship that he's on, it's interplanetary, not interstar. This is a slow goddamn ship. This ship would have taken literally the two centuries that it did to get this far, even going at its max speed. Which is why all of them are in cryo. Well, it's not cryo. We don't really get exactly what it is. I don't know if it's meant to be cryo, but because of budget issues, they just kind of put a glass panel on like a pod in the wall and made it look like they were asleep. I don't know. But they're like asleep in these pods with like a glass window. And they're fast asleep, but the doctor does scan, and he's like, they do have heartbeats. Now, some of them failed. I think on the ship they said there was about 90-something canisters, survival capsules, or whatever they were called. And there was about 70 or so that were still running. So about 20 people had died since then, which makes sense. It's a 200-year-old ship. Everyone on board has been asleep. There's been no maintenance. Things are going to break down. 20, losing 20 pods is understandable. What I still don't know is where that shit was headed, or what the original plan was, or whether he just fled. We don't know, because he refuses to answer. But what I love... So, almost immediately, we're introduced, when they go on board, they find it's an old 20th century ship. So, Kirk gets the 20th century historian on board, who is named McGivers, to come aboard and do some work. Come and help him out, see what information she might know about the era, the people, and the ships, to help them you know, with whatever's on board. Now, when they reactivate the energy cells to get the lights back on, sorry, Khan Noonien Singh ends up waking up because he is the leader. So the ship has obviously been programmed to, whenever it reaches its destination, wake up the leader. He will then determine if that's where they want to go or he'll redirect the ship and then wake his friends up. Probably saves on power of putting, you know, the whole crew to sleep and waking them back up. Just let the leader make the decisions. Makes sense. Now... He wakes up. Now, at first, he's a bit confused, and he's like, where am I? How long have I been asleep? And they put him in the med bay because he's tired. They bring him over to the Enterprise. They leave everyone else asleep at first, and they bring him over. Now, they're very confused at first. They don't know what to do, but Dr. McCoy goes over him, and he determines, yeah, like I said before, all the things. He's a genetically engineered human. He is healthier than you would expect. Better heart rate, better strength better lung capacity, just everything about him. All of his vitals when he's on the machine being monitored are above an average human. He's like, he's healthier than any human on this ship, even after 200 years of sleeping. It's almost unbelievable. Which is, you know, a pretty telling sign where they're like, yeah, 
Because then we see a, a, a part on the bridge where Spock, the science officer, is going through their records, trying to work out who this is. And they put two and two together. They're like, all right, the error this ship would have left is somewhere in the 90s, end of the 20th century, the eugenics war was happening. I think it's a safe bet, based on his vitals right now and what we're seeing of him, that he is a eugenically a eugenics product. He is one of them. At first, they don't know it's Singh. You know, because Noonie and Singh is, like I said, he's a big figure from their history. He would be recognized, but they don't recognize his face. He, at first, he refuses to announce himself as anything but Khan. He just says, Khan, that is my name. He says, I'd like to read through your tech manuals. I'd like to update myself on the century I'm currently in. You know, at first, Kirk's like, that's fair enough, because he doesn't really know who he is just yet. They have suspicions, but they're not certain. And he's like, you know, you're a patient. Everyone is free to read all the things that you can access on this little monitor. And he gives him the monitor and lets him go through and read up and update himself a little on what's been going on in the centuries in between and some of the different texts. And he, with his genetically engineered brain, I have to imagine has, like, photogenic memory. He instantly remembers everything he reads. Because why wouldn't you give that to a... Some people already have that. They're born with it. If you were engineering a person, you would 100% put that in them. Because that's something I think everyone wishes they had. How much better of a society would we be if we remembered every detail we ever read? Imagine how much easier school would be switching careers if you could just pick up a book, no matter how boring, read every word, and then just show up at a job because you've now read the manual. You know everything about that craft. You never need to read it again. Never need to top up your skills. You've read one book, you know every word for word of that book, whether you enjoyed it or not, it is in your brain like stone. You'll never forget it. People like that, they can be dangerous. They can be very dangerous, but they can also be brilliant. Now, he reads through all these tech manuals. Now, Spock ends up working out who they are, and Spock says about 90 of them survived. And Kirk's surprised because he's never read about that. And he basically says, would you tell a traumatized, bombed out population who was already fearful that there could be 90 supermen out there that could return at any point? And that's a good point. From the Vulcan point of view, I probably wouldn't have told humans either. Both to protect them from their own fear from doing something stupid and ending up more militarized to try and defend themselves from the eternal threat of these people who may never come back. But also, because there's probably portions of the population at that point that still would have been eager for their return. You may have had scientists trying to engineer new troops to help them when they returned. You may have had people trying to run nations in a way waiting for their return. By keeping it a secret, the Vulcans kind of allowed humanity to just see it as the past and not worry about it too much and move forward. Which I think was a good idea. But I do feel like after 200 years, it probably should have been mentioned. Probably during the founding of the Federation would have been a good point to be like, oh, by the way, I doubt it'll ever come up, but 100 years ago, there were 90 engineered soldiers who went missing. This is the little we know about them. You know, and let humanity do what it will with that. By that point, we were established and it was different. But that's the Vulcans. They logically, what's the point? So they don't tell you things. Now... Khan starts off pretty cool, he comes in, he's very, you get the feeling that he's being very manipulative, very quickly, like he refuses to give more than just the name Khan, he won't give his full name, he won't say what his ambitions are, or where he stood back in the day, or where he came from, and whenever he's prodded too much, or asked questions, or Kirk starts getting suspicious, he fakes a headache, starts saying, oh, I'm feeling exhausted, I, I feel I must rest. 
and plays on the fact that he's been asleep for so long and plays on people's sympathies and they're like, all right, we'll finish this later. And he keeps doing it. And it's very obvious, and I think Kirk was starting to find it obvious after the first few times as well, that this guy's messing with him. He's prodding him. He's getting information without giving any. This man is still a warlord. He is still prodding you for weaknesses and any info he can use. And that proves to be true. He basically brings in McGivers, the 20th century historian who apparently has a bit of a fascination with dictators. One of these women that seems to like abusive men or not just dominant, but very abusive men. Because like he basically squeezes her hand so hard that it, she has to kneel to the ground. Like It must hurt a lot. He must be nearly breaking her hand. And then after that, he says, will you stay? Because he lets go. And she basically just says, yes. I don't know if she's scared of him or she's just so infatuated with him for whatever reason that she wants to, but she says yes, and she helps him. And together, they manage to break out of his quarters, get on the transporter and go to the SS Botany Bay and wake up all of his people, who Kirk, up till this point, had been towing the ship towards a starbase. He didn't want to wake them up, especially once the suspicions of who they were became apparent, because then he realized he only has a crew of like a couple hundred people. He can't afford to have 70 supermen suddenly on the ship because he won't be able to stop them. Uh, honestly, I don't know if he would have been able to stop them on a starbase, but I agree with him. I would rather go to a starbase than open it up on my ship. But doesn't work. Can't escape. So he gets his people. Kirk works out what's going on, but it's too late. By the time security calls him to say that their guard at the front of um, Khan's door has been knocked out and Khan's escaped, it's too late. They're awake, and not only are they awake, he has read all the tech manuals about the ship. He now knows how it works with his photogenic memory. He has come back with his people and locked down the ship. He's locked down the bridge, and he's turned off life support. Kirk and everyone on the bridge eventually are... They're knocked out because they run out of air. They start suffocating and they hit the unconscious. Now, we don't get to see it, but at some point after Kirk falls unconscious, Khan and the others must come up, reset the life support, and drag them down. Because the next scene, they're all in a room, and Khan's basically telling them, we're going to use this ship, we're going to ditch ours, we don't need our ship anymore, your ship will be ours, we're going to form this new era into an era for us. And he starts picking on them, saying, you know, your technology has gone up, but it seems that man has not changed at all. He says an interesting comment. I didn't write it down, but he says something along the lines of these little tech and gizmo techs. No, he doesn't say gizmos, but he says the technology you have increased since my last time being awake will increase productivity. But if you increase the nature of man, you will change the universe forever. Which was an interesting point of view, and maybe he's not wrong. I mean, look at the modern day. Everyone's got technology, and yet a lot of people argue that most people are stupider than ever before. Or because technology made life easier. It's easier to be more productive with doing less. Whereas in the past, those that got a lot done and were productive were usually better men. Or better women. They were just better people because they had to try harder. They had to think. They had to think more out-of-the-box thinkers. Whereas today, you know, I can just pull my phone out. I can quickly Google something. I can quickly get information. And that kind of makes you lazy. And it makes your thought process lazy. And it sometimes makes you an undisciplined, lazy person. Like most of our societies are now. So in some ways, he's not wrong, but also shaping the world in his image when he is basically a Napoleon Caesar Hitler type is not exactly what most humans want. I don't think most people would enjoy living under the dictatorship he would build. I have no 
denial that he's probably right. Humanity under him would have done great things. They probably would have conquered the Klingons and all sorts of species under his leadership. But would the day-to-day life be worth it? I think most people, including Kirk, agree that it would not. So yeah, he takes over the ship. He then tries to basically torture the others after they wake up by watching Kirk in the decompression chamber in the med bay, where I think he was decompressing the air out, and he basically says, you're going to watch him die. Because he says, this is what I really like about him. He's very good at reading human nature. Like he said... You're all going to keep denying and not working with me. Perhaps I made a mistake when I locked you all on the bridge. I created a bit of a camaraderie bond between you because you've all nearly died together and now you all feel a bond for each other. He said, well, I'm going to break that bond. And he showed them all on the screen, the decompression chamber, and said, it's one thing to all pass out and die together. It's a whole nother to live and watch each of your friends die one by one in front of your eyes, knowing you can do something about it. And man, that's sick. He's so sick, but he's right. You know, I feel I'm one of those people. I'm pretty stubborn. I feel like I would be quite content to die with, you know, people I trusted if I believed that was the right thing. But could I sit by and watch people I cared about die if I knew I could do something, even if it was wrong? I'm not sure. That's a much harder question. That is, a, you know, which is why it sort of works. Except he was kind of wrong, because at this point, McGivens decides to sort of betray him. She still cares about him, but she's not willing to betray the whole crew completely yet. So she goes, she says to him, I don't want to watch this. And he says, you don't have to, you can leave if you want. But he does express that he's a little disappointed in her and thought she'd be stronger than that. So she goes down to the med bay, manages to stick the guard in front of the decompression chamber with a needle that knocks him out, and opens it up to free Kirk. Now a few minutes later, you know, she also managed to shut off the view screen so that in the room with Khan they can't see what's happening. Khan sends Spock down as he says, it doesn't matter, by now your captain is dead. And Uhura and everyone has very noticeable reactions to this. Everyone's pretty upset that they believe Kirk's just been murdered. And he says, next up is Mr. Spock, and he sends another one of his guys down there with Spock. <laughs> Except Spock passes towards the decompression chamber, and as he passes the wall, he kind of in the corner of his eye sees Kirk standing there with his gun ready, or with his phaser, and he managed to, in a very Vulcan way, just act casually, keeps walking forward, And then the second the genetically engineered guy walks past, Kirk attacks him, Spock turns around without even hesitating, knocks him out with the Vulcan death group. The two of them then try and take back the ship. Spock goes to try and activate the, what was it called? Neural gas that apparently is fitted, like anti-intruder stuff on the ship, to knock all of Khan's people out unconscious. Except Khan. Khan worked out what was happening, or what they were doing when he lost contact with his people down there, quickly ran down to the engineering area where he knew they'd go and has a pretty damn cool fight with Kirk, actually. Kirk's, like, jump-kicking him in the chest, but it's pretty obvious that Khan physically outstrips Kirk. Like, we've seen Kirk's a good soldier. He knows how to fight. He's very well-trained in hand-to-hand combat. Khan's just better. He's got, you know, more, more going for him, more strength, more capacity for everything, but Kirk... I guess experience kind of trumps it, because Kirk manages to, after fighting him for a while and throwing his whole body at him and doing momentum attacks and things that you wouldn't normally do, but things he knows he has to do because of how much superior his enemy is, he then grabs a metal pipe, and while Khan's trying to basically set the ship to self-destruct if Kirk doesn't stop what he's doing, Kirk beats him over the back over and over and over with this metal pipe, and then turns off the self-destruct. 
At this point, we've won. Khan is unconscious. All of his people are unconscious now because Spock has succeeded in the gas going down. And then we get the the cool little ending where Kirk basically there's a little tribunal. They're all like in their fancy clothes. I have to presume that the people of Khan are still unconscious, except Khan, or they're at least in cages or something. They've definitely been locked up again. And Kirk basically says that he forgives them of all crimes. He's not going to charge them with anything. However, he is going to send them on exile. And this is what's funny. He mentions Australia again. He says, this time, I'm going to drop the crew of the Botany Bay onto a planet. It's a bit of a savage planet by regular standards, but it is habitable. Nobody lives there currently. Do you think you could tame it? And he looks at Khan Singh. And the Khan just kind of smiles and says, you've beaten me this time. But yes, we will calm this world. We will tame it. We will make it our own. And you will hear from us again. And then he gives McGivers, the 20th century girl, because remember, she's a human. She's not genetically engineered. She's just one of the crew that decided to betray them. But she also decided to betray Khan to help the crew. So Kirk says, I can either offer you an official reprimand on your record and a dismissal from duty, or I can put you in exile with them. I will make the choice yours. And she chooses to go with them. You know, so they're going to be exiled on a world. Now, obviously, I'm not going to go too much into what happens in the movie, but we'll learn more about that later. Spock makes a comment afterwards. He says, I'm, I know you have the authority to do this, but I do wonder what the seed you just planted might grow in the future and what troubles it might cause us. Which, you know, I think was the writers when they wrote that way of also saying, hey, um, we're going to come back to Khan at some point. That was their kind of little, we're going to use Spock to tell you that we're not done with Khan. We called the episode Space Seed because we're planting the seed for a future story. And I like that. I I would be very interested. I don't know. I'd have to look up at these interviews and what the original plan was. Because I don't know if they originally planned to do a movie. But this might have been just maybe in the future they kept him in their pocket as like, oh, if the show is not cancelled and we're still successful, maybe in season four or five we'll bring back and we'll have like a two-part episode of The Return of Khan. I'd be very interested in reading like what the initial ideas were for keeping him alive. Or, you know, maybe they didn't have ideas. Maybe it was just, this is cool. We don't quite want to, you know finish the book on this and close it and never see Khan again, but we don't want to focus on him too much, so we're going to exile him on a planet and just leave it as an open-ended, maybe one day we'll have a cool idea and we'll bring him back. I don't know. Anyway, that's basically this episode. It was a really cool episode. I really enjoyed it. Um, I mean, there's not much else to add. So they put them on the system called SETI Alpha Star System, which... As far as I'm aware, there's nothing else in that system. No, nothing, you know, civilized anyway. There's no space stations. There's no habitable, no habited planets. There are, There is a habitable planet, but there's no habited planets. It seems to be just a star system where there's not much, which seems to be a good place to dump very dangerous exiles. Now, the only other thing I have in my notes that was sort of interesting to bring up was McCoy at the very start of the episode when they're going to the SS Botany Bay expresses quite a few misgivings about using the transporter. He says he didn't sign up to have his atoms scattered all over the cosmos. Which is kind of funny, because it's not something you see a lot of. Not many characters in the original series, or any of the series, really have much of a problem with using the transporter, but it does come up now and again. There are a few weird transporter stories where things happen. And, like, I get it. Because a transporter is breaking you apart at a subatomic level and then reconstructing you, I mean... Both fans and writers go back and forth and debate on whether 
you're killing the person and recreating an exact copy with all their memories at the location or whether you're putting that person back together and whether that matters. But like, I feel like if this was a real technology, yeah, 100%, I could see lots of people feeling like McCoy and just being like, I don't like that thing, I'd rather take a shuttle. That thing freaks me out. I don't want my atoms being scattered across the universe. And like, yeah, I get that. But it is funny because most characters in Star Trek, without hesitation, they transport everywhere, they don't even think about it. All their food, all their goods get transported, the people, they just step up on the transporter platform and go. It's, it's nothing, no one even gives it a second thought most of the time. There's a couple characters, but McCoy is one of those. Like, Kirk even says, oh, you're an old school man. And we'll see a lot later on again in the prequel series Enterprise that is before original series. We'll see a little bit about, at that point, the transporter was still a much newer thing. It was still newer technology, and a lot more people felt like McCoy. And I kind of like that McCoy... Because we sort of see he's a bit of an older man. Like, I think McCoy is meant to be a little bit older than, um, than Kirk. He's meant to be a friend he made in the service rather than at the academy. So I like to think that, like, McCoy is one of those doctors, probably from the later part of that era, back when, you know, in his early career, transporters probably weren't standard. He's probably the sort of doctor where when he first started, shuttles were the way they did everything. He doesn't like transporters. He probably still resents them and doesn't really like it. He's just an angry old man yelling at new technology. It's fun. It adds a little bit of character to him and, you know, it adds a bit to the universe. Anyway, that's the episode Space Seed. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you all next time. Bye for now.